Welcome back, everybody, to Ellie Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I'm back here with... Dr. Scott. Hey, everybody. Hey. I'm just back from Palm Springs and really relaxed where I'm worried about Dr. Shiloh. I think I need to send an email. <laughs> wow. Ooh, that was sincere. Uh, Good for you. <laughs> no, I'm so happy you had such a relaxing weekend. Oh, um, yeah, here we are in April. I hope everyone's staying healthy because I'm not. I've had a head cold for five days and... Um, apologies ahead of time for the voice and for the sniffles. So yeah, I hope everyone's doing better. <laughs> and Well, look, I'm going to use this as a teaching moment because oh we care about all of our listeners. We should have, maybe I can put some like sweet violin. I should be yeah, exactly uncle, uncle daddy, some sweet music in or something, but you know, you've had, we actually, this has been a pretty stressful two months for us. Like Indeed. a lot of stuff is going on. None of it bad just super, super stressful. You took on a huge responsibility doing a conference all week. Yeah. And, and a training was, a couple of weeks before that. So like, right. Yeah. Right. And I wasn't able to attend that because I was doing my own thing with like a huge bargaining issue. Mm -hmm. And so here you are sick, which makes sense. You didn't totally. do anything to, for exposure. It's just what happens when we get worn down. So indeed. Yeah. yeah. You guys like, seriously, my body has let me know this. On the front end, the anxiety I was experiencing physiologically and biologically, and then I was fantastic for the time that I had to be on. And now afterwards, here's the dump. So yeah. it's, it's real. like it's the boomerang. The boomerang <laughs> always comes back. And here's the thing is you don't ever do this stuff. I'm the I'm the dramatic True. histrionic hypochondriac in this pair. So indeed. <laughs> yeah. So hey, this you is... have to agree with you so quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, for real. That's, that's serious. And so hence the reason I was like, Oh no, no, no. Like this cannot be happening to me. So here's the steps I'm going to take. But I think at some point it was out of my hands and here I am. <laughs> yeah. But we're back and then, Hey, give us a recap on what the last episode was. I love yeah, when you do that. So now. Before we get going here, we just want to remind you that our last episode was a breakdown of bipolar disorder, a very misunderstood mood disorder, and the particular stressors that come with celebrity. Two things that are evident in the Kanye West incidents and in his life, and things that we've been seeing. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please go back and listen to episode 92. We've had some really lovely responses from it as well. So, moving. you know, yeah, very moving. Like, again, we just don't know which episode is going to hit home with people. And we have had some nice emails and messages from folks in how they received it. So I'm happy for that. And for more housekeeping, you know, piggybacking on what you just said, we got, again, wonderful commentary and feedback from one of our very educated listeners, Lee, regarding last episode, we were talking about the challenges of getting through pregnancy with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder because the medications are so significant. And I was not aware of this. I was not aware that there some of the newer meds and the appropriate doses are OK to be taken through pregnancy. So Lee wrote us and thank you so much, Lee. There are newer meds that are safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And when patients work with a reproductive psychiatrist, they can safely treat their illness without harm to the baby. Actually, not treating carries more risk to mom and baby than treating. 
Also, history of bipolar does increase risk of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, especially postpartum psychosis. Those of us that work with patients with PMADs struggle to educate patients and the public that there are safe options for treating mood disorders in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Close quote. Lee, thank you so much. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a reproductive psychiatrist. I know. How cool is that? I was like, oh my God, another specialty. Right. We got (laughs) to, I want to go look into it. And I will say this. I think that she's hitting on something incredibly important is that the body chemistry of the mother is going to have an effect on the child because because we do, we talk about women going under horrific periods of stress while they're pregnant and the effect that that can have on Mm -hmm. activating certain things in the child. And this is one of them that we should all be aware of, like get the support you need. Right. Definitely. So again, absolute and amazing props for our listeners who offer their expertise because I was not aware of this at all. And Lee could not have zeroed in more astutely on a very vital point. Not treating carries more risk to mom and baby. Thank, thank you for restating that. It's it's so spot on and part of my job, sadly, that I have to deal with the consequences of individuals with bipolar not being compliant with their medications. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's an ongoing issue. And like you said, we've heard back from a lot of people and probably we'll do some follow up on this. So, yeah, thanks, yeah. everybody. But for today, yeah. let's let's turn to a different topic, psychogenic amnesia. I started doing this research for another project. So, hey, you know, two birds, one stone here. Yes. efficiency, um, <laughs> Right. And how is it that we have really never talked about amnesia before on this show? I know. <laughs> Come I mean, on. Really? I like in all these episodes, this is classic soap opera whodunit type of stuff. Yeah. Amnesia itself that's been used to really great effect in storylines from like Days of Our Lives, I know, uh, True Blood, oh, Born yeah. Identity. Of course, look, psychogenic amnesia is a very particular type of the disorder. Psychogenic mm-hmm. amnesia specifically refers to cases of memory loss understood or believed to have a psychological origin and not a neurological cause. So just remember that as we go through today's episode. Right, right. So we definitely want to give you guys a trigger warning because we're talking about discharge of weapons. We're talking about Mm -hmm. pretty violent wounds and we're going to be reading from court transcripts. So just be aware that we're actually talking about the the blood and guts today, um, which is difficult for some people. Totally understandable. Indeed. So I thought we'd start with a reference that some of our listeners might know. We will go back to a Criminal Minds episode where (laughs) psychogenic amnesia (laughs) was front and center. So this is season three, an episode called Tabula Rasa. And we know we know know what that means. Blank slate. Very Freudian. Yes, yes. Uh, so essentially this episode opens up with the FBI going to serve an arrest warrant on a suspected serial killer. And when executing the arrest warrant, he tries to escape and he goes up to the rooftop and tries to jump from one building to another, clutches the edge and falls from the rooftop hitting his head, but not dying. But he goes into a coma for four years. Mm. Yes, this is Criminal Minds, not Days of Our Lives. Um, 
So fast forward and he wakes up, but the doctors say that he has focal retrograde amnesia, basically no memory of who he is or of his participation in the murders. So they are trying to, after four years of not looking like they're going to prosecute this case, for some reason, he simultaneously gets put on trial while they're simultaneously continuing the investigation. And some of the things that they talk about is, is he even the same person? Is he still a danger to society if he really cannot remember this. And as the episode goes, of course, he slowly starts to get his memory back. He ends up escaping from court custody and goes back to the scene of his crimes. And they put it all together. (laughs) Yeah, they put it all together to capture him where they know he's going to go. And they find him sitting there cradling a skeleton of a woman that I guess he dug up the body because there was one more they didn't know about and all of his memories flooded back. So wait, Um, is he, is he, so are they trying to say that he's not the same person that he now has remorse for what he did? So he's remembering it or no, they were just like, okay, if he never gets this memory back, do we prosecute this guy? Like he doesn't know. So no, I mean, it basically ended there. They did end up, I think, moving forward the case. If it even said, I don't know. I just know this is literally the only full episode I've watched of this show. And it's horrible. I think we're going to have some unsubscribers right now, but probably is awful. No, you know, we talked about criminal lines before and like, look, as a, as somebody who worked in entertainment and on shows that were, you know, B minus shows as, as, at best, Criminal Minds was on for a long time. Is it still on? I mean, I it ran for so. a long time. Very successful. So who am I to, to judge? If it's got an audience, that means it's making money. So it doesn't matter. I will say, I think all of the actors are great. I don't think that they're utilized very well. Mm. So that's that's one of the things that pisses me off is, and I think, wasn't it Mandy Patinkin left the show because it was too intense for him? Oh, Yeah, really? I think because okay. Mandy Patinkin was on at the beginning and he left after a couple of years now. Maybe he just got tired of doing a procedural or yeah. A procedural. Yeah, that was looking for the, that was the word I was looking for. But who knows if that is. Look, I watched probably half a season and I got over it really quick. And I know it's popular, but it's such a Hollywood version of something that to me could have been so much more real and gritty. Like you think about the mm-hmm. first and second seasons of uh, True Detective. Right. About how they were dealing with horrific things, but the psychological aspects of them and consequences. And you're just engaged and enraptured. And all, of course, the actors on that were brilliant. Oh, every yeah. one of them brilliant. And that's what I feel like is missing from this. I also like <laughs> Joe Mantegna's goatee color. I mean, I know it's ridiculous. <laughs> But that shiny, <laughs> jet black, all one color, coal goatee on what? a 74-year-old. It's not real, realistic. Uh, hard to believe, huh? <laughs> I mean, this was back when the show started, like, I think it was 2005. So he was early 60s. Now yeah. he's all silver. Total, like, yeah. you know, silver fox handsome, which is what they should have let him be from the beginning. But I get stuck on that ship. You're in a rabbit time. hole now. <laughs> Oh, I know. Jennifer's Pony. Do you remember? Okay. Do you remember? So you only watched episodes. So there was an actress that played a character. I think her name's AJ something. She was Jennifer. She's on the first couple of seasons. She always had this sleek, perfect foot and a half long blonde ponytail straight down her back with just a slight poofy bump. And then after a long day's work, she kind of whips off the elastic and it's just this perfect shimmering fall of hair with no elastic crease. Oh, bullshit. That, I know that's total Harry Potter shit going on. <laughs> I can't put my hair in a ponytail for five and minutes without a crease. So I swear to God, I'm going to stop right now. But okay. the other thing is these procedurals, 
stop having one person be the quirky. Like oh, I'm just tired yeah. of it. It's just, it's like, it's such a trope. Yeah. And let Penelope's character wear something that doesn't look like a freaking costume, you know? <laughs> even Got look, it. even quirky people like to go norm core and wear like <laughs> <laughs> wear like lands end every once in a while. Oh you know, she's my just, gosh. She's begging the producers, can I please just wear a pair of jeans? Can you I know? have some color, please? Please. <laughs> anyway. Uh, all right. Well, regardless of how we feel about probably exactly. one of the most <laughs> beloved crime shows on TV. Exactly. This is an important topic in real life because if we look at the research, it appears that about 20 to 30% of those who have committed violent crimes claim crime-related amnesia. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. And interestingly, even though we're talking about homicide-related cases today, it should be noted that this form of memory loss is not only reported by violent offenders, but also by those convicted for sexual crimes and property offenses. So why would they do this? What are the benefits? You know, I think those are some things that we need to ask ourselves today, especially when we talk about like, okay, a petty property crime, like what, what is it? So what, what comes to mind for you, Scott, for why somebody would claim amnesia for a crime they're committing? Well, I think it's a pretty quick, impulsive, primitive defense. Like it's really not, to me, it's indicative. If we're talking about malingering or feigning, which you're going to get into later on in the episode, it's the idea that if it's like a little kid that's broken the cookie jar Uh and if they just keep saying, no, I didn't do it. Like, what are you talking about? That the parents are going to believe it. It's a very primitive defense response, but not like necessarily psychological. It's more like, I think, retreating to a place that's of that developmental age of three, four or five. that is just lying. But that's one of the problems and the fascinating challenges of this particular subject is that there are so many ideas about what's actually going on chemically right. and structurally, which we actually got some stats on, which I think yeah. is interesting. Did, did you have an idea from before you even dove into this? Did you have an idea of what you thought it was going to be about or well, what, what, what the instigator would be? I think the obvious is that just it's to sort of remove yourself from criminal responsibility, right? It's like the easiest right. thing to do is say, well, I don't remember because it's almost like you're not actively saying I didn't do it, but it's this place where maybe the cognitive distortion can feel a little bit better if you just say like, I don't remember, even though the person probably remembers and they're probably totally lying. Right. But it's interesting that you say like this impulsive piece to it too, because the data does show that when people say that they don't remember and they're having amnesia, it is a tactic to, okay, if they do get me on this crime, it's going to seem more impulsive rather than planned. So maybe I'll get manslaughter instead of murder. Okay. Also to impede the investigation, right? If I give them zero details, then these detectives have to work harder. So that's also a reason that we find that people claim amnesia. And then this hit home when, you know, we started seeing the information about sex offenders also claiming amnesia. Of course, like I remember people just saying, I don't remember so much, but really when you get down to it and you finally get them to talk about it, it's because they don't want to talk about these actions because they're so shame-based when we're talking about sexual acting out and inappropriate sexual activity. So makes sense. But let's get into amnesia stuff. First, I just want to know, Dr. Scott, have you had any experience clinically with patients with any sort of amnesia? Because I think that would be interesting for our listeners. Not directly with amnesia, what I would, and not recovered memories. What I would say is that I have worked with people who have compartmentalized 
experiences in their lives to such a degree that it takes decades for them to get to a place in a really contained and safe therapeutic environment where they're actually willing to let that that cabinet in their mind open up Uh, and then it spills out and it can actually be quite traumatic. It can actually be really traumatic when they realize, oh, that that thing that I thought was playing when I was little was not playing at all. Or that thing that I did impulsively when I was five years old is so shameful to me now. You know, there's it's about context. It's that paradigm of context. But I did have a really particularly jarring experience in grad school that I think I may have mentioned before in my neuropsych class. Our professor, she worked in a few different locations, one of them being a neuro rehab up in Santa Barbara. And she invited one of her long term clients to come to our classes to speak, which it sounds a little odd because it sounds like, oh, she's bringing somebody in that's breaking privacy and HIPAA stuff. And it's really not that because the client really felt strongly about being able to give back to the community to explain her story. And wow. this, this woman had a traumatic brain injury from about 18 years before. And it stemmed from falling off a golf cart and the golf cart turning over and injuring several people. This case is actually why golf carts can't turn over anymore. Like, Every one of them across the U.S. was recalled in order to make them unable unless you get out and literally push it over. Yeah. But she had a a brain bleed from what was thought to be just a simple fall. And she was in this resort area with a really sort of just an, an urgent care, not really a clinic. And as she got more and more kind of loopy throughout the night after she had been discharged, her husband checked in with somebody on the mainland and they were like, you have to get her off the island right now. You have to get her to a major medical center. And by the time they got in, she had already had quite a significant brain bleed right in the area in the limbic system, which processes emotion. So now she also had a lot of other issues. You know, she had to learn to speak again. She had to learn to walk again, all of which she conquered very, very well. But the last things that were coming in very slowly, those emotional connections, she had no memory of the, well, she had a memory of the emotion. She just didn't feel it anymore. Mm. So she gave an example of looking at her husband and just not loving him. Yeah. And she would remember loving him. And she's like, he's a nice guy, but feeling no connection at all. And look, I was in grad school and still working full time and camping at night up in the mountains (laughs) to save money. And so I was under a bit of stress myself. But that story, when she said she couldn't remember loving her husband, During when class broke, I went out in the courtyard and I sobbed like I just Uh. it's fucked me up so bad. And I like, you know, cried for a few minutes and a friend of mine came out and was like, what is wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, you know, this story just really, really punched me. So then we went back in the class and she said that she did want to tell people that like over the years, though, that there were bits coming back. Interesting. So she was the, the she said that her doctors were assuming that maybe there actually was some restoration of brain function, but ooh, that's not exactly what oh we're talking about. The idea of emotional amnesia, just like oh, yeah, oh god, I know. Well, mine's kind of similar. So I I worked in a rehabilitation institute for one of my practicums in the neuropsych department, and I was mainly doing testing and full batteries for looking at brain damage and things like that. But my supervisor. 
he did therapy with the folks who had suffered head injuries and some other issues that were going on. And we had a patient that had hit his head so hard from just standing up into like an open cabinet door, which I've actually done and it cut my head open (laughs) severely. And there's nothing like that pain. No, because the force of which that you just stand up is like incredible. But he received a head injury so bad that he had retrograde amnesia, which I'll go into in just a moment. But he couldn't remember his wife or his adult kids or even who he was. But there was just zero emotional connection to the family that was coming in to his bedside. And same thing that you're explaining. He's like, they're lovely people. (laughs) I just, I got nothing for them. And it was just very bizarre and very sad. I'm glad I didn't personally have to work with him clinically, or could you imagine working with the family? Just how awful that would be. But I'm glad that there are people out there doing it because the people who specialize in that kind of family trauma, they're doing work that is just, it's saving people, you know, it's restoring people. Absolutely. So amnesia itself is a type of memory loss that affects your ability to make, store and retrieve memories. And there's two main types of amnesia, retrograde and anterior grade. Retrograde amnesia affects memories that were formed before the onset of the amnesia. So, or before the injury, if it's caused by an injury, someone who develops retrograde amnesia after a traumatic brain injury may be unable to remember what happened in the years or even the decades prior to that injury happening. Retrograde amnesia is caused by damage to the memory storage areas of the brain various different brain regions. We know that there are some main areas which we'll go over, but there's a lot of different pockets of the brain that are interlinked as far as how you store and make memories. Like you were talking about that person that came into your classroom, there's more of damage to an emotional system part of the brain. But this type of damage can result from things other than a traumatic brain injury. It could be due to a serious illness, a seizure or stroke, or of course, a degenerative brain disease. So depending on the cause, retrograde amnesia can be temporary, it can be permanent or it could be progressive, meaning it starts off maybe mild, but gets worse over time. But interestingly, when people lose decades of memory, they typically hang on to memories from childhood and adolescence. So I think that's so fascinating that yeah. there are some core things that just are embedded beyond. Right. That, they are at the, that, the, the base of memory that's the, so early, you know, ingrained they can't in memory. Be written over. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so retrograde amnesia can result from damage to different parts of the brain responsible for controlling emotions and memories, which are primarily the thalamus, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex, which are all involved in encoding and storage of information in autobiographical memory. Out of these three brain areas, the hippocampus is probably the most vulnerable to temporary or permanent dysfunction. So closed head injuries, consumption of large quantities of alcohol, put a pin in that because we're definitely going to talk about that later, use of certain prescription or illegal drugs, low blood pressure, as well as shortage of oxygen may result in a temporary deranged hippocampus, which is the language they say deranged, meaning it's damaged or compromised in some way. 
Other medical causes of retrograde amnesia can include thiamine deficiency, encephalitis, which is inflammation in your brain, Alzheimer's disease, or even cardiac arrest. So there's a lot of things that can cause this, specifically focal retrograde amnesia, which is what the dude had in that Criminal Minds episode, also known as isolated or pure retrograde amnesia, is when someone only experiences retrograde amnesia with few or no symptoms of anterior grade amnesia. So this means that the ability to form new memories is left intact. So from whenever the injury happened, then beyond, they can make new memories, but things before then, there's memory loss. So this isolated memory loss doesn't affect a person's intelligence or their ability to learn new skills, like playing the piano, it's just everything backwards from the injury. Now, focusing on anterior grade amnesia, people with anterior grade amnesia have trouble making new memories after the onset of amnesia or the injury. This is also due to damage to memory making portions of the brain. Again, primarily the thalamus and the hippocampus and can be permanent or temporary. Think of the movie Memento, right? He had that awful short-term memory loss. <laughs> I mean, it was such a great depiction. I think everybody remembers that and how frustrating it feels to just sit there and watch that movie. And so I hope that's rare, right? I mean, like, do we, did you get numbers on the cases of that? I did not, but it, it's it so is. horrific the way it's portrayed in the movie. I mean, it's a really amazing movie, but yeah. oh, how would you even live? I mean, it's you'd have to be in assisted living, you know, or some kind of one to one care. All it's day, like moment right? by moment. It I can't it, you feel exhausted by the end of that movie because of like the energy it takes just to feel like you're living moment by moment and reminding yourself of things. So, yes, it is absolutely detrimental to your daily functioning as well as you can imagine social and occupationally just how it would absolutely disrupt your life. So for example, someone with this form of amnesia might forget someone they've met recently or a new phone number or a recent meal or the names of famous people, changes to their routine or maybe, you know, job changes or changes at school. So there's a lot of days that I feel like I have this. <laughs> I, I think that there's research on this particular thing, not that we have really time to go into it. I think the research on that shows that that's stress related. Oh, I really, that's stress related. And there's a specific reason, like my version of it is from casting. I never forget faces. Like I will never, ever forget a face, but there are times where I like, how do I know this person? And mm -hmm. they'll be coming up like, Oh, sure. Dr. Scott, how are you? And I'm like, Oh, uh, what? Yeah. So did I arrest you? Are you a patient? Ooh, yeah, that's the, right. that's the list I go through. Uh, how much confidentiality do I have to have in this moment right now? That's the <laughs> Rolodex, my Rolodex that's happening. Interestingly, there was a study published in the journal, the journal is just called neuropsychology. This is a while ago, it was in 2010, but they found that seven out of 10 patients with anterior grade amnesia were capable of temporarily retaining new information. However, they observed that a phenomenon called retroactive interference was occurring. So this is when new information learned was interfering with previously memorized information. So for example, they might remember a phone number 
And then if they learn a new phone number shortly after, that cancels out the original one. So again, just yes, I, you know, at first you're like, Awful. okay, there's some hope here. We're like, they're capable of learning new things, but then there's this cancel out phenomenon that's happening. It so, seems like a glitch. It seems like yeah. a software glitch. Oh, that's a great yeah. way to put it. Yeah. That was a long roundabout way of laying a foundation for what we're going to talk about. But I think we should turn to the type of amnesia that seems to be most common when a crime is involved. Right. You know, AKA when a perpetrator is claiming to not remember the crime conveniently, because that's more specific than anterior grade or retrograde, right? Right. So there's three basic names that almost kind of mean the same thing or are related. So we have traumatic amnesia, psychogenic amnesia, and dissociative amnesia. So memory loss that has a psychological cause rather than a neurological cause, like we said before, like you were saying, illnesses, strokes, brain injuries, it's known as dissociative or functional amnesia. So this is really good to point out here diagnostically that when you hear the word functional, you have to think this condition is serving a purpose. It may not be a good purpose, but it's serving a purpose. So that's necessary to understand to get a better diagnostic picture. This type of amnesia can be global. The whole the entirety of the person's past, or it can be situation specific. So in psychogenic fugue, there is a loss of sense of personal identity and then a period of wandering. And these are some of like the lost people you know, that show up and, you know, like go into a fugue and then they're found 20 years later living a completely different life, you know, Mm -hmm. but diagnostically psychogenic fugue lasts from a few days to about four weeks. But people in this state can even travel to a different location. And like I said, start to adopt a new identity, but it falls under dissociative disorder. So a quick review of dissociative disorder that we've talked about in previous episodes, dissociative disorders are mental illnesses in which there's a breakdown of the mental functions that normally can operate really pretty smoothly, like memory, consciousness, awareness, Um, especially identity and maybe and also perception, really. So dissociative symptoms can be mild, but they can also be so severe that they keep the person from being able to function. Dissociative amnesia is rare. It affects about 1% of men and 2.6% of women in the general population. Environment also plays a very important role. The rates of dissociative amnesia tend to increase after natural disasters and during war. Mm. So what are we talking about there? Trauma. Trauma. Absolutely. Trauma. Dissociative amnesia has been linked to overwhelming amounts of stress, which could be caused by traumatic events like war, abuse, accidents, disasters. The person may have suffered the trauma or they may have witnessed it. Again, fulfilling, like I said before, a function that is protective or defensive. Most cases of dissociative amnesia are relatively short. Often the memories can return completely and suddenly the memory recovery may be triggered by something that is in the person's surroundings or like I was saying before through the process of therapy where you're slowly to you know a couple of metaphors I like to use are peeling the onion you like you peel one layer away so that you can actually see the other layer or going through a cupboard and opening a drawer that hasn't been opened in years like I that's really what it feels like when you're working with people like this. Interestingly, people who suffer medical amnesia are upset by their memory loss, whereas most people with dissociative amnesia seem to have surprisingly little concern over their amnesia. Interesting. Once again, I think that's a functional expression. Yeah. 
For on sure. some level of like, why would I be worried about this? What, you know, on the, the most primitive limbic, like reptile brain part of us, that's that the, our brainstem. Yeah. I don't have anything to worry about. This is fine. I'm not yeah, losing like my anything. brain's taking care of me. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's doing what it's supposed yeah, to do. Fine. Yeah. So as fascinating or juicy as all of this sounds, there are actually very few known cases of patients with acute psychogenic memory loss. And there's even fewer studies about what happens at those periods of time or comparisons with neurological memory disorder patients. I mean, it, it's certainly a field of study where it'd be great to get all that data in there if there was enough sure. data and really compare all of those. Understandably, the literature on psychogenic amnesia is somewhat fragmented. And it was even described by one of the research papers that I was reading as, and I'm going to quote here, it offers little predictive value for the individual patients. I found yeah. that really interesting. They say that there are three different explanations for memory loss in offenders, because what they did is they all looked at this sort of crime related amnesia. So they break it down as the first explanation is that quote, during the time of the crime, some offenders suffer from a temporary brain dysfunction that prevents or undermines the storage of criminal events in memory. This type of memory loss is labeled organic amnesia. And then they go on to say that the second type of memory loss is what you're talking about here, Scott, dissociative amnesia. Quote, the second explanation holds that many offenders are in an extreme emotional condition like rage when committing a violent crime. Therefore, crime-related details would be stored in memory in the context of strong emotions. Later, when the offender has returned to a more calm state of mind, he or she would be unable to remember the crime because of a mismatch in emotional state between the encoding of the crime-related events and the retrieval of such events. When people have dissociative amnesia for a crime of passion, they note that this is sometimes referred to as a red out in the research. I love, Isn't that interesting? It is fascinating. And I love that the terms that they're using kind of go along with the way I was trying to frame it of a, being a glitch, like almost a software yeah. issue, encoding and retrieval, which is what computers do. That's what you do from your, your hard drive, right? Absolutely. So then they say, yes, that a third explanation exists for crime-related amnesia that is a considerable number of offenders are pretending to be unable to remember crime-related details. And this type of memory is called feigned amnesia, which we'll get to later. But I just love that, how they break it down. Yeah, there could be some organic issue going on. There could be, they're just lying, but there might be this a dissociative thing happening where the state of emotionality is just different storage. And then when they're in a different, you know, calm, not rageful anymore. Maybe there's a glitch happening where they're unable to remember it. So it's definitely not rare that people are accused or convicted of violent offenses claim right. crime-related amnesia. No. We know that. Even 70 years ago, researchers found that 31% of criminals convicted of homicide reported memory loss for their crime. So we had the numbers at the top telling us that it's between 20 and 30%. And many decades ago, they were still finding that to be true. And it looks like they've been looking at this for quite a while. So if you're starting back 70 years ago and then moving forward, there's a, another bunch of papers in the 80s where researchers Taylor and Koppelman interviewed 203 men who were charged with both violent and nonviolent crimes. And this particular study included 34 men accused of having committed murder or manslaughter, 26%, which would be nine of them, 
asserted that they had no memory of the event. So then another 20 years later, uh, researcher Pizora and colleagues, they looked at case notes for 207 people that were sentenced to terms of life in prison. And they found that in this sample, 29%, which was 60, claimed no memory of their crime. So it's interesting, like it's all kind of falling yeah, that within 20 to 30%. that 29 to 31, it seems like, right? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things when you and I are like sending notes to each other on our shared Google Docs, you're like, hey, you cover this or can you get this? And I'm going to cover. So you threw diagnosis at me, which I always love because it sends me completely into a, a rabbit hole. But with any diagnosis, especially with something involving cognitive or neurological function, you always want to do a medical rule out like that is medical first like you especially with this yeah oh my gosh exactly it's like if someone is having an emotional breakdown but they're also bleeding out let's let's talk about the emotions later and let's make sure that your medical issue is taken care of and that sort of should be the overarching level of hierarchy of needs as it were when you're doing something like this so you want to do a medical rule out that confirms that there's no physical or chemical damage to the brain or neurological system. So while there are no laboratory tests that can diagnose or visualize dissociative disorders, a doctor could do something like blood tests or imaging, including x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, and that could help rule out that the patient doesn't have a physical illness or side effects from a medication or chronic substance use. As an aside, this is something, having gone through this with my mom who was in assisted living, It's crazy. The first thing that they do when they see in assisted living that someone is off from their expected behaviors is they do a urine test because UTIs can cause in elderly people all types of cognitive issues and quick like it can happen within 12 hours. So, look, if it's concluded that there's no physical illness, physical damage, neurological or chemical involved The next step is for a full mental health battery to be completed. So a clinician will complete an evaluation, a clinical interview, and then generate a comprehensive picture of the patient's experiences and their current functioning. And so some clinicians could use standardized tests or even more specific ones, such as the structured clinical interview for dissociation. Oh, I didn't know there was such a thing. Of course there is. (laughs) Right. So this amnesia of any form is... So tragic. Is there any hope as far as treatment or cures? So like you were saying before, you set up a framework of where the majority of this comes from, which is some sort of if it's real, if it's actually found to be real, then it's going to be stemming from some type of brain damage. So currently, we don't have any treatments that can quote unquote, cure amnesia. But there are a lot of treatments that can concentrate on condition management. So treatment focuses on therapies and techniques that certainly, first of all, you want to do what you can to improve the quality of the person's life. And if there are certain areas of deficit in their ADLs or activities of daily living, those have to be managed so that things don't get worse, as it were, because you have to look at everyday functioning as a multi-legged stool. And if you take a leg out, then everything's just going to collapse, especially with someone who has some sort of injury or um, dysfunction in their cognition. So you know, let's keep everything stable to the extent that we can. And then you could, like you're saying, address if there's vitamin deficiencies, like you were talking about thiamine, I think you said was important, which is vitamin B1, if there is a deficiency. And then you have 
occupational therapy, which uses like assessment and interventions to develop, recover, or even just maintain the meaningful activities. And that could be associated with maybe what they did before in their life. Maybe like if you were a nuclear scientist, we're not going to put you in charge of anything, but we might put you in front of materials or like expose you to the things that you were used to doing in the past Mm -hmm. in the hopes of stimulating that area of the brain to start maybe repairing. We have what we know now, which is very interesting. Up until 20 years ago, they were like, nope, once you got a brain injury, it's done. Like there is no repair. And while we're still trying to work on things like Alzheimer's and other dementia diseases, the brain actually retains plasticity well into adulthood. And hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that there'll be more and more treatment. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. So they can also do memory training. You can do tech assistance. I mean, now we have reminder apps. We have, you know, so many things where you can track people so they don't wander off. There's a lot of things that that can be really, really helpful. But there are currently no FDA approved medications to treat amnesia. But interestingly enough, the way that you look at the research of any subject can really reveal more information. So you and I, like we start with newspaper articles and academic journals, and we, we go everything. We're looking at everything. We're yeah. getting the court cases, the transcripts, the stuff that's posted online, and we're, we're pulling it apart. But if we're doing this episode, our search term is going to be court case, psychogenic amnesia, like, right, that's the specific. But then what is it that causes the psychogenic amnesia? Traumatic brain injury. So then if I went down that rabbit hole and searched for the latest trends and studies for treatment of TBI, there's this wealth of information considering some very new therapies that are getting really good results. Bear with me. The use of psychedelics is showing great promise in a controlled setting like mushrooms, LSD variants. And then beyond that, which sounds like a little woodly doodly, I get it. There's also really well-respected treatments being done at USC, at UCLA and their brain imaging program. There's one called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is being used very successfully for depression and severe OCD. And they're thinking now it may be helpful for stimulating parts of the brain to regrow it or regrow it is the wrong word. I'm just going to say stimulate. There's also a more specific and more targeted version of TCMS called MERT, which is magnetic e-resonance therapy. So here's the other thing. In addition, as the world population continues to age, there is so much pharmaceutical research being done to develop drugs that will halt and slow down and hopefully reverse damage caused by Alzheimer's and other diseases that affect brain function. Now, for better or worse, the thing that's behind that is money. Yep. So it's like, look, the boomers are heading and I'm, I'm on the tail end of the boomers. You know, I'm like in that weird place right before or no right, but between um, generations and they know there's a lot of money to be made on, on that. So we could see some great things coming down the pipes. Okay, so now getting back on track about the specific issue of a criminal defense using possibly the idea of psychogenic amnesia as a as a defense for a crime that was committed. There is an overlap between that and competent to stand trial. So we've touched on this before briefly, but the idea is that if you go to court 
You have to be able to understand what is happening to you. You have to be able to understand that there's a person representing you. You have to understand that there are charges against you for something that you have allegedly done. And you have to be able to repeat that back. Now, in the perfect world, that would happen very cleanly all the time. We absolutely do not live in a perfect world at all. So in many cases, you can have severely mentally ill people who I feel are not competent to stand trial at all. But if they can answer a series of yes and no questions, then the process will move forward. So in terms of what we're talking about today, competent to stand trial means you understand the processes, you understand the charges against you, and you understand the consequences of the process that you're going through. That's a lot, right? It is a lot. lot. But I bet if I was looking at this through defense attorney eyes, I would say, okay, maybe this is a gamble we're taking because it's not as if you're saying, hey, my client is insane or did this crime due to a mental illness. Right. Oh, no, no, no. This is just like a weird temporary glitch in the brain that is dissolving them for responsibility. You know, it seems like a risk they might want to take. So interesting. Okay, so before I get into the case study, are you watching the Theranos miniseries? Because I know you and all of our crew are just over over white, white women, white lady con- trauma, <laughs> no, white con women. Yeah, uh, white con no, women. I'm not. I'm not. Okay, so there is a scene, and who knows if it actually was real or if it was written for the show. But the character of Elizabeth Holmes is talking to her mother and says, "Well, what if I really believed what I was doing was mm. right?" So, you know, opening up that idea of like, did she con herself, which is conning yourself is one step away from delusion, but that's a whole other thing. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place. And it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So I want to give a case that happened in Illinois regarding a man named Eris Stahl. Let me just, I'm going to give you the whole Everything that happened on the night, I'm going to try and like drive right through it, but everything is so important. Eris Stahl's former wife, Erin Krupp, filed for divorce from him. Stahl threatened to shoot her, and so she got a restraining order. She also changed the locks and started an alarm system and kept people around her, like kept a mutual friend was staying over. At 4 a.m. on April 6, 2009, Eris broke into Erin's home. His previous home, she was residing there with her, their four-year-old son. And there was a babysitter there, Alyssa. The child's babysitter was asleep on the couch and Chuck Smith, their mutual friend, was sleeping in the guest room. Okay. Okay. So Aaron and Alyssa wake up to the sounds of breaking glass and the alarm going off. Terrace got into the home. He was armed. He forced Aaron into the living room, although she had managed to dial 911 and yell for help. So she got the process started that something's going on at the house. Terrace knocked the phone out of her hand and then awakened his friend Chuck with with a gun in his face. So he's basically going through the house and herding everybody into the living room. Terrace told Aaron, Alyssa and Chuck that they were all going to die that night. He forced them at gunpoint into the basement. Terrace then pointed his gun in Aaron's face, stating that he would he really was ready to change and he wanted the family to work. Then 
terrorist put the gun to his head and asserted he was going to kill himself. Aaron tried really hard to de-escalate the situation by telling him not to hurt himself. However, he then quickly pointed the gun at her, discharged the weapon by her ear and stated he wanted his family to work, but nobody else is going to have Aaron. And after he shoots, he goes, now, you know, I'm serious, bitch. Okay, so clearly not in the greatest state of mind, in a sense, in a state of rage, possibly under the influence that hasn't come up, but he is not being consistent in what he wants. He's sending them very mixed messages. Yeah. So they all think they heard something. Terrace allows Alyssa, the babysitter, to go upstairs and check on the child, the baby. And Alyssa sees a cop outside. She doesn't want to make any noise. So she motions to him sort of using sign, not really ASL sign language, but she takes a hand. She uses her hand signal as a gun and points it to her head. And she's indicating he's down in the basement and, you know, trying to tell that there's a number of people down there. She's also really smart because she was taking her chance. I'm going to get get myself and this baby out. So she uh-huh. grabs the t- child and she gets out of the home. The cop then gets more information. Additional law enforcement comes. And Chuck was told by Terrace to go upstairs and speak with the cops. He, you know, he's complying with the cops. He walks out. Terrace is saying, saying to Aaron downstairs, if I can't have you, then nobody can. And then Chuck takes longer and longer to come back. And Terrace is freaking out. He says, I'm not going to go to prison for this. So he switches again and he gives Aaron elaborate instructions for his funeral, how he wants people to pay respects to him, and then what to do with his insurance policy in his car. He's all over the place. Yeah, seriously. So Aaron backs up the stairway and then, you know, trying to calm him down, calm him down. And then she sees him lift the gun to his head. He says, I'll see you on the other side. And he shoots himself in the face. So Terrace was found by cops lying down, face down, bleeding from the top of his head. He had kind of crawled up a couple of steps and he was taken immediately to the hospital by ambulance. And later, during the process of the trial, we're moving forward. Defense said that due to brain damage from his self-inflicted gun wound to his face, he couldn't remember any of the surrounding incidents leading to home invasion and what was later uh, charged uh, home invasion and unlawful restraint. Oh, my God. It's an episode of Criminal Minds. I know. So he survived his injury. And then in May, he was charged again, officially with home invasion and aggravated unlawful restraint. He goes to jail for an extended period of time. And I'm sorry to to chuckle, but this is just so typical of government and bureaucracy. He was conditionally released to live with his parents because the county jail couldn't meet his medical needs. Oh, boy. So a month later, he's indicted on both charges. But he was found unfit to stand trial. So they remand him to restoration of fitness. And after that restoration, another hearing was held. And again, they were like, he doesn't get it. He can't get through this. So the trial court found him unfit to stand for any kind of trial. And they went for like a discharge hearing. He was found not, not guilty. (laughs) Got it. Literally, that was, that's on the trial (laughs) transcript says not, not guilty. Well, he's not, not guilty. Not, not guilty. (laughs) And so like, is that in special font to get the right inflection? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the way we read it. They did remand him to their Department of Human Services in Illinois for extensive treatment and for 24 months. So two years. And, you know, they're trying to like, we've got to get him restored so that we can follow through with this. And so it's two years later, he's been in treatment again, unfit to stand trial. 
even though there was incredible, overwhelming evidence against him, all these people saw him. It's not like there was any hearsay at all. But the problem was both he did not remember doing it. He had no memory of a lot of things. Not He could form memories, but he was like pretty much disabled. And that was the debate. Can we hold him to this since he has no memory of what it was that he did. So now the defense and the prosecutions bring in their experts. So the defense brings in Dr. Kenneth Gilbert and Dr. John Raven. Gilbert initially interviewed um, Terrace in 2009. And she mainly that was because his mother wanted to make sure he wasn't going to hurt himself. Dr. Gilbert provided a report based on his July 2009 evaluation. And he said that Terrace suffered two types of memory deficit as a result of the gunshot wound. So he couldn't recall the events at the issue at the time of the precipitating event or anything that happened in the 48 hours leading up to those events, which I think is pretty clever. (laughs) Well, yes, but also we find that happens with traumatic brain injuries that are accidents. There's that that period. There's that period of time that's missing before. So yeah, convenient. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's convenient, plausible. but it's it's light. It's actually could be possible, right? Yeah. Again, like you were saying earlier, his ability to form new short-term memories was completely impaired, like severely. So they got him to understand that he was being charged with these offenses and they got him to understand the potential for long-term punishment if he was convicted but the defense still found him to be unfit to stand trial because he couldn't recall the events of the day of the event. Yeah. So then Gilbert jumps in. Dr. Gilbert says, look, he can't cooperate with his attorney to assist in his own defense because his short-term memory would make it impossible to, and this is the quote, track what happened in court from one day to the next. So they're saying, not only does he not remember doing it, but he's so damaged, he can't from one day. We can establish competency on the day of and he won't be able to maintain it yeah i'm sure this is all true but like this guy's gonna suffer for the rest of his life anyway just based on what we know it sounds like it yeah i mean it sounds like this is one of the cases where as brutal as the whole thing is like he really really is impaired and it ended up that they went on i mean one of the things that dr rayburn the other psychologist one of the things that dr raven the other psychologist said is that terrorists lacked the capacity to understand the nature of the proceedings to assist in his own defense and that he said if the defendant's amnesia on the day of the event's charged were his only impairment, then he would say, absolutely, he is fit to stand trial. If it was just like, you don't remember doing it too bad. Right. But going back 48 hours, not having anything to lead up to, and then where he is now, like just like a gold. I mean, I'm not being, I don't mean to be, it's like memento. He can't hold on. Right. They're two separate issues. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So Finally, they come back to this not not guilty plea and they end up remanding him to be cared for by his family. So there's no real resolution for the people that were traumatized. I mean, you think about the babysitter, the ex-wife, oh the ex-best friend. Hopefully the the young child was was way too young to remember that. But I hope so, but so Ugh. this is not really necessarily like an example of what we've been talking about, psychogenic, where you're in this dissociative fugue state. But it does talk about that complexity of the interaction between competency to stand trial and gosh, and all function. the above. Yeah. Head injuries with the amnesia of the 
And, wow. And what does this feel like Aaron Hernandez in a way? Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. We got a little bit of that mixed in there too. It's hmm. fascinating stuff. So I, I had another case, but I think yours is more interesting. You had a case yeah. study. So I have one that does involve someone trying to claim psychogenic amnesia. So perfect. Perfect. This is the case of Colleen Harris. We have a a female perpetrator here. So Colleen and Bob Harris, they meet as kids when she's about 13 and he's 15 and they live in the Northern California area. They grow up. She goes on to marry twice before she and Bob actually reunite and finally start a relationship later in their adult life. And in 1990, they marry. Bob was a retired U.S. Forest Service supervisor and Colleen was a land surveyor. And they worked on various land projects in the area together, living in Northern California. Colleen's two daughters and son served as co-best men and maids of honor for the ceremony when they got married, along with Bob's adult children. So it was kind of this blending of older families. Bob had retired and he took on some consulting projects. So he was doing some work that would really take him away from home for months out of a time, sometimes out of the country. And his son, Andy Harris, further described him as somebody that was an avid baseball umpire. He would umpire little league games. He loved to travel and he was a conservationist. So things weren't totally rosy for the whole time that they were married. They actually divorced at one point and then reconciled and remarried. And sometime around Christmas of 2011, Colleen is at home recovering from hip surgery and she starts really strongly suspecting that her husband's having an affair. She finds basically evidence that he bought a necklace and had it shipped to this woman in Mongolia, which is actually one of the countries where he had done some of his consulting work. So in January of 2012, Colleen gets more evidence about the affair. She even confronts the woman over the phone and she's really, really upset. She's texting his kids, telling them that she knows about this other woman. His children later explain that their father was really worried about Colleen's behavior. And when he was coming home from a work trip, he was fearful to even come home. And he was worried because her emails to him were all over the place. She was angry. She was sad. And he was constantly saying that he was fearful for his safety. When he comes back home, he he moves out of their Placerville home to a family cabin that was up in the Lake Tahoe area where Colleen apparently had already like dumped a bunch of his belongings. And one of his daughters said that when he did that, he added extra locks at the cabin because he took medication to sleep and he was afraid that he wouldn't be awake if his wife ever came in after him. So yeah, I think might... I would, I would cut down on the sleep medication. Then. <laughs> yeah, that too. Wow. But you might ask, why is he so afraid of his wife? Well, let's go back several years to July, 1985, when Colleen was in her forties. And one night she calls the police to report that she had just shot her second husband, James Batten, who was 46 at the time. So she had just shot her second husband of the night and she had not of the night. I've shot myself. This is the second husband I've shot. 
God, how does this thing keep going off? So this was in the same Placerville home that she was sharing with Bob later in life. And she murdered James with a shotgun. In the 911 call, she told dispatchers that she was scared and that her husband was lying on the floor and he won't get up. And she also told the dispatcher, he said he was going to kill me. Oh, God. So in the 1980s trial, the defense argued that she acted one in self-defense in response to ongoing abuse from James and in court that her defense attorney, David Weiner called a psychiatrist to testify that Colleen, despite her 911 call had suffered from traumatic amnesia and had no recollection of the killing on the witness stand. Colleen got up there and testified to remembering that before the shooting, her then husband held a gun to her head threatened to kill her and forced her to commit a sex act after boasting about having sexually abused her daughter for more than a decade, which was from her first husband. So you can see they're kind of laying out a couple of things, battered women's syndrome, as well as then saying that there's this loss of period of time where she doesn't remember what happened when she actually killed him. But the prosecutor the then chief assistant district attorney, Walt Miller, argued that Colleen had waited an hour before calling police after shooting her husband and that he was apparently just sitting in bed reading a newspaper when she murdered him. So in 1986, Colleen was actually acquitted of that murder based on self-defense, and she was found not guilty by a jury of nine women and three men. Where did this take place? Northern California, Placerville. So, well, wow, I'm I'm actually really surprised. Yeah, yeah, it I'm worked. Really surprised. I mean, I, I think we're saving battered women syndrome for another episode, so yeah. I won't go down that road. But I think the '80s was kind of a coming of age for that defense. The burning bad was around that time. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about that. So, so let's go back to her marriage to Bob and Bob's children had expressed being uncomfortable with his marriage to her because of them knowing she had previously killed a husband. And Bob had told his son, Hey, look, Colleen had a hard life. The shooting of her husband was really unfortunate, but he said that he cherished her. He was determined to marry her. He said, I love her and I want to provide for her. So they did end up getting married. And what ends up happening is that at some point, Bob ends up returning to the home in Placerville. And on January 5th or 6th of 2012, Colleen, who is now 70, shoots and kills Bob with, you guessed it, a shotgun. What? Oh, wow. She then immediately packages up some valuables, drives them an hour or so away to her son's storage unit. On the way home, her car has some sort of malfunction. So she has to call a tow to come help her out, which they have the phone calls for that. And she's perfectly able to say, hey, I need somebody to come help me get my car out of this ditch or whatever. And then she gets home and the first person she calls is the attorney that defended her back in 1986. And wow. She has now killed two husbands in the same manner, in the same house, 28 years apart. And it's actually her attorney who calls police and says, I met my client's home with her. Her husband is dead and she's arrested. So there's a videotaped interrogation that you can watch on YouTube. In March of 2015, the trial begins. Colleen tells investigators that she... Basically, she describes being in what she said was, quote, a gray fog 
And she insisted she would never shoot her husband, which is never say never because it already happened once. But she recalled the only thing she said she had was a brief memory that her husband had some sort of bloody nose in his sleep. And then at one point when she was told that her husband had been dead for many hours, like during this interrogation, she responds, oh my God, you're joking, right? So the video, again, like you and I talk about, it's very hard to tell if somebody's lying with any sort of examination of body movements and things that they're saying and things like that. But it, it's an odd video to watch. You know, there there's some... Some things that seem as if she's feigning surprise, I guess is the best way to say it. But in this trial, she ends up being found guilty. It did not work this time. She was sentenced to 50 years to life on June 15th, 2015. So here's a woman that twice claimed she had some sort of dissociative amnesia to the same crime, essentially. I have so many mixed feelings about this story, which I was completely unaware of. I mean, I was unaware of the story. My reaction mm -hmm. to hearing it is that, I guess, is there any cognitive dysfunction where, you know, is this person not a particularly smart person, mm. you know, that thought, well, I got away with it before I should certainly be able to get away with it again. I mean, that's, that's particular or, or narcissistic to think that they're sure. going to be able to get away with it or is there something else going on that under periods of extreme duress, she does this? I mean, there's there's that possibility. The only thing that, of course, it throws in is like, why did you take all your valuables and go hide them? Right. I mean, there's so many other things, but right, uh, right. it's it's kind of hard to fathom that a 70 year old woman would get a 70 year old. Anybody would get to that point. Like, what were the precipitating events that led up to this? I don't want to say snap because I never say snap. Oh, but, never. You know. Well, we have you know, we have the betrayal. We have that, you know, here, this husband that wanted to provide for her is now stepping out on her and he's sending her gifts. So the, the rage that is slowly stewing there, that the, the sort of flavors we get with personality right. disorders of if I can't have him, no one else can sort of thing. And maybe a little bit of, Hey, this worked last time. We'll see. But it, that happens over and over again with people. There's people with multiple dead spouses where yeah. they kind of slip through the cracks. So Peterson, never marry a Peterson, uh, never marry a Peterson. So I think to wrap up here, let's talk about just how yeah. a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist would evaluate this type of amnesia when it's related to a crime, because clearly assessing clinicians need to be able to conduct an evaluation to determine whether or not this person's feigning the amnesia to avoid culpability or responsibility or all those other things that we've talked about today. And yes, it would be very convenient to say, I don't remember what happened, but we hear that all the time in crimes, in fictional depictions, of course. But the bottom line is that there really needs to be a multi-method approach here for evaluators. So going back to the paper that I mentioned before that I found from the Netherlands. So this is from 2018. It's from Maastricht University out of the Netherlands and some researchers out of Norway. And I love that essentially two departments came together. It was the Department of Clinical Psychological Science and the Department of Criminal Law and Psychology that collaborated on this paper. And they essentially outlined the ways to evaluate the genuineness of crime-related amnesia. But I thought it was so cool that they decided, well, do people believe people when they say this? And they actually asked lay people and they asked mental health professionals. 
and found that in both groups, now this was only in Norway, but they have lots of good crime dramas over there. So you have people that are into this stuff in Scandinavia, but they found that around 40% believe when the criminal says that they have crime related amnesia, both of the lay people and of the mental health professionals. That's very interesting to me. Right. Right. Yeah. So is it like, oh, well, I know a bit about psychology. Like, yeah, this is a thing. I don't know. It's so cool. Remember when I said that temporary damage to the hippocampus can be due to large quantities of alcohol? Well, a decent amount of offenders who claim crime-related amnesia also report that their inability to recollect criminal events is actually due to the high levels of alcohol consumption. So they found that drinking alcohol does not necessarily lead to amnesia. And in order to develop a true alcohol blackout, one would have to drink so much alcohol that that type of memory loss is assumed to only be plausible when the BAC level is like higher than point. To five percent. So, is the study only? Is it looking in that area in the Netherlands because the alcohol consumption is higher there? Oh, that's interesting. I don't. Yes, the study was just in the Netherlands. Interesting. They were just kind of noting this as like, okay, when we do look at these types of cases, here's what's going on with a chunk of them. the The main purpose of the paper was really to take a case study and then demonstrate how one would sort of walk through a method to look at this, but they were throwing in so much of this other information that I thought it was worth noting. I think we also have to note that generally most prescription medications don't really result in memory loss either. So to kind of rule those out, but you know, you do have stuff like GHB that definitely can have temporary memory loss. So those could be factors as well. And then of course, Rohypnol, you know, roofies. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These researchers also wanted to look at lab studies of encoding memories in one emotional state and then recall in another. So when we were talking about them previously, this is something that they were really outlining. They found that it does not lead to a substantial inability to remember stimuli presented in the learning phase. So even though they hypothesized it as, hey, this could be that glitch that's going on in dissociative amnesia, when we do this in a lab and we account for a lot of variables, we're not seeing this glitch happening. So sounds like a plausible excuse, but we're not really seeing data to support that. Additionally, they reviewed that research that looks at when people engage in multiple actions, you tend to have a better memory about those notable actions, right? So the more steps you have to doing something, the more likely you are to remember it, like what would be necessary in a violent crime, planning it out, committing it, the steps afterwards. A successful one, yeah. A successful one, yeah, yeah. So again, it's just... They're sort of looking at these big bodies of research that have always existed and saying, eh, this doesn't, this doesn't really support how things would go. Most importantly, they noted that there are dozens of studies that have demonstrated that strong emotions do not undermine memory performance, but actually enhances memory for stressful events. Now, there's a difference between stressful and traumatic, right? Can you briefly just like tell us what, uh, what would we consider a traumatic event clinically? So just at the most base level, we would say it's going to be a situation where an individual perceives that the stakes are very high. Like let's just go for your life is at risk or 
you witness that for someone else. So vicarious trauma could be a child witnessing intimate partner violence between parents or the adults in the room. You could be in a car accident where you think you're going to die. You could be going through horrible air turbulence on a long flight and just constantly, you know, Mm -hmm. you're never giving your limbic system a chance to calm down because you just keep getting turbulence and you think you're going to die. You think you're going to crash. You could see an accident in front of you Uh where you think that the occupants of a car are not going to make it. Yeah. I mean, I remember a motorcycle rider plowing into an 18 wheeler up La Cienega in like oh, 1987 when I first moved here. And I remember it I, and that movie plays in my head. Like uh, I'll never unsee that. There you go. So it wasn't your life that was threatened, but you witnessed someone else's definitely counts as a traumatic event. Well, studies show the same thing in terms of memory and traumatic events. People tend to have great memories, even years later, although there can be memory gaps for some parts of the event, which, you know, I might have talked about that before with one of my officer involved shootings. I definitely have memory gaps and that's pretty consistent. What we see with, of course, those types of traumas, which critical incidents is something that I debrief and something that I study. So we know that that happens. So really there's a lot of stuff that we already know in psychology that we can kind of apply to looking at whether or not someone's memory is functioning appropriately, even if it's highly traumatic, even if it's highly stressful, even if it involves committing a horrific crime. So here's what they suggest. So if you are a mental health professional going to evaluate someone to see if they are feigning amnesia or not, again, number one, rule out that high blood alcohol level. So they want to know, is alcohol damaging the hippocampus? Just right off the bat, so many crimes have alcohol as a factor in them. So immediately they want to kind of rule that out by, of course, clinical interview. But then you would get the data if that person blew on a breathalyzer or if there was blood drawn. Number two, ruling out medical issues like you talked about, whether this is an MRI or CT scan or a full neuropsychological eval to, again, rule out issues with the parts of the brain that are systems for memory. And then you want to evaluate the clinical features of memory loss. So you would sit down with a person and do a very extensive clinical interview to look at the periods of real memory loss. Do they have sort of a gradual and blurred onset and termination, which is normal, thus an amnesic episode with an abrupt beginning and abrupt end would be suggestive of feigned memory loss. You have those little gaps where you don't remember anything, but you also have these islands of areas that you do have memory. That is, they do not have completed memory loss, but they're still able to remember some elements of events that occur during the amnesic period. There's also something you can evaluate for that is called, quote, feelings of knowing, which pertains to the idea that... When unable to remember the events, one could retrieve the information from memory when given the right hints or the right clues. So it's sort of, you know, when they talk about tip of the tongue, Scott, like when we're in neuropsych class and they're like, okay, you you get that feeling where you're like, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. This is sort of the same thing. And if you were given the right little clue that you go, oh, yep, that's right. Here it is. 
So because true amnesia often goes hand in hand with feeling of knowing an offender stating that absolutely nothing will bring back crime related events or any memories would again suggest that they're faking it. So the research is mixed on this. Just a caveat. I love that there's a, a tell like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it is something else it, there. That's perfect. Like you would just use that as, as a tell, not, you wouldn't put everything on that. And then there are structured self-report instruments. So the, there's one called the structured inventory of malingered symptomology, the SIMS. It has 75 yes or no items that measure an individual's proneness to endorse bizarre or atypical symptoms in five areas. And one of those areas on there is amnesia. So the rationale behind the instrument is that people who are faking don't know how genuine symptoms manifest in these five different things they're looking for, including memory loss. Have you ever used this instrument? No, no, I never got trained on the Sims. I had heard of it and I've read a lot of reports. What I am more familiar with is the Toms, Mm. which is more specific to malingering rather than memory. But I just, I, I love the idea that there are these types of tools to be used, I think that malingering can be looked at in a broader sense about how people are maybe not being honest with themselves and to get a taste of that, not to place people in a, you know, clinically and, you know, shaming them or anything, but to get an idea of where they're coming from in dealing with big issues, big life issues would be helpful. But as far as like specifically the Sims, not I, I only read the reports. Yeah, definitely. I did get trained on it a little bit in a, a practicum setting when I was working with parole. So, you know, we did a few different tests for malingering and this was one of them. And it was really interesting. You know, it's just yes or no questions, just self-report. So you just sort of give it to them and, and let them take it and then see how it goes. So how it works is that they have basically improbable items on there that are intended to elicit a response from the person who's faking the amnesia. So an example would be an item that says, recently I've noticed that my memory is getting so bad that there have been entire days I cannot recall. Or at times I've been unable to remember the names and faces of close relatives so that they seem like complete strangers. If there are things that just really don't match up with how true amnesia goes. And essentially, if they're endorsing those, then if they get a high enough score, then you're able to suspect there's something going on there. There's other assessment tools for feigning, like the TOM, the test of memory malingering that could be used as well. I also have used that one. Pretty easy. It's not a perfect system, but this is essentially how you would run through and start to articulate your opinion on whether or not this person is feigning amnesia. Offenders who feign amnesia for a crime are lying about their memory loss. And some of these tests, I think, speak more to maybe even just the credibility of the offender rather than exactly pinpointing an intact memory. So if I have somebody who, like I give one of the assessments to and is just super sky high on faking their symptoms, at least I can say this person just does not come across as honest or credible or a good historian. You know, I almost can't make this evaluation rather than going, aha, they're lying about their memory. So it's, it's not a total litmus test, but it's a tough area, I think, for, for forensic work to be able to, to sit down and really pinpoint where and how and why 
this person is suffering from something if they are. It's almost easier if they are than if they aren't. I hope right. that makes it's, sense. It's, that <laughs> seems to be sort of in line with when you talk to detectives or people that are doing interrogations and that the the one thing that they don't want is somebody that gives them too much information. Yeah. You know, because it's it, it is it muddies the water in many ways. And like in I know and this is another example of something that you have no interest in watching. But the thing about Pam really shows you know how pam hupp just kept generating information that was leading people the wrong direction and you know it became problematic for and then those detectives were really bad anyway like they weren't able to discern yeah. that she was faking a bunch of stuff so i will watch that one because you said renee zellweger is so good i think it. she's fantastic i really do think she's fantastic to give it a look yeah okay. all right that sounds like a great episode. Another one in the books. Yeah. We've got CrimeCon coming up. We're so excited. We got swag. We got travel yes. plans. We got an Airbnb. We got surprises. <laughs> we may do some live broadcast with me finally meeting our dear, dear friend, Jason. I know our sound editor. We hope many of you are coming to Vegas as well. And our next episode will actually be leading up to Vegas. So it's going to be not Vegas themed per se. I don't want to give it away necessarily, no, no, but it, it, it will have to do with something along the road there. Yeah. So, all right, everyone. Well, thank you so much. And please join us on Get Vocal this weekend. And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye, folks. Get a booster if you can. Stay safe. I need mine. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> we sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Essery of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening and join us next time.